Uh, if you've not been with us the last couple weeks, I uh, encourage you to uh, go online and listen to the last couple sermons. Not because they're two of the best sermons I've ever preached. I don't think that at all. Uh, but because it's important in the life of our church. Uh, here we are at the beginning of a new year. Here we are very much coming out, of, uh, coming out of a pandemic, still in a pandemic, needing to find out who are we as a church. And, um, and so we looked at our mission statement as a church. So our mission statement as a church is that we want to apply, we want to bring the personal work of Jesus Christ to bear in every area of our lives and our communities. That means there's a balance to this, that if we only apply the personal work of Christ to us, then we become this self-obsessed community that only cares about our needs. But if we only care about those on the outside, those who are in our community, those who are in our neighborhood, those who are in our city, and we don't look to apply the personal work of Jesus Christ in our lives, then we quit growing. We become very thin. And in the end, I think we become burnt out. So it's important that in our mission that you see the balance and play there. And then last week we looked at uh, the, the vision of our church, what we hope to see happen. And then what we hope to see happen is that the, air, the neighborhoods in and around downtown, we want to see become like a new city, the city that is to come. And how does that come about? And we talked about the mundane things that, that from Jeremiah 29, the, place, the, the things of committing to place, of going to work and doing family. That's how we see this new city come to pass in our midst. So, uh, those are two very important messages, and now we move into the specifics, the specifics of uh, who's in our neighborhood, <laughs> that we'll be talking about uh, loving those who are different than us, we're talking about serving the poor, and we're talking about uh, reaching the skeptic these next few weeks. So before we get into the specifics of those three groups, I want to just talk about mission broadly, about loving people broadly, and we're doing that by looking uh, at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So let's read these uh, few verses. Um, when, when I stop, you guys fill in the next word. So here, here we go. Let's, let's just start early here. Though I am, let's do it again. Though I am and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like those under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like, one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the to the weak, I became to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the that that may share in its blessings. All right, so our passage today is really about freedom, and freedom's a really big deal uh, in our country. It's very much a part of our story that we want to be religiously free, and that's why our, some of our ancestors came from Europe to America was so that we could practice religion the way that we wanted. And then it became about being politically free, and that was about the Revolutionary War. And so when we get to this idea of freedom, we're bringing a lot into it as Americans. We've got to see that. And in verse 19, we see freedom understood. Verses 20 to 22, we see freedom practiced. In verse 23, we see freedom enjoyed. 
Now, freedom's not just a big deal for us as Americans, it's a big deal in the scriptures. I mean, you start reading through there, you get to the book of Exodus, and really it's all about being free from slavery. <laughs> it's the Exodus out of Egypt towards the new land, the land that God had promised. And they were free from Egypt, but then they become free to obey the God who's freed them and God giving them the Ten Commandments, giving them the law. And then throughout really the rest of the scriptures from Exodus, you see this whole theme of bondage and slavery combined with freedom as one angle to explore salvation. So when Paul picks it up, it shouldn't be unfamiliar. But let's talk about a little more about what, what we are bringing into this conversation uh, as Americans. Sure, it's a part of our history, but it's also very much the way we still think about what we actually value. Except we're really divided about what freedom means, depending on your political persuasion. If you're a little more, let's just say, red in hue, if you will, if you're a little more red in your political color, then you're going to gravitate to emphasizing freedom on bearing arms and freedom to speak freely. If you're a little more of a bluish hue, you're going to emphasize rights around equal pay and the, and the right to unionize. Now, these are really ideologically different. You know that. We all know it when we sit around the table with the generations at family meals. But what we have in common is this reverence for rights. What we have in common is this concern for losing these rights. And when we talk about this, all these are about rights to something, freedom to something, freedom to perform an action, freedom to access a resource that we think benefits us and in the end benefits society. So freedom to, freedom to, that's what we major on as Americans. But there's another kind of freedom. There's this freedom from. And many times this is assumed. So we think we have freedom from financial insecurity. And so there's an organization in the government that if you don't know anything about, you should Google and just read the Wikipedia article called the FDIC. We want to be free from financial insecurity. So this would be a good thing for you to know about the FDIC. We want freedom from environmental disaster. I know in the midst of Hurricane Ida, I don't know if you caught this, but just as I was kind of collecting thoughts about what was going on down there in New Orleans, what I picked up on was, yes, the hurricane caused devastation. But it would have been, it would have been way, way worse if they had not fixed a bunch of the levee systems after Katrina because they were afraid Katrina might happen again. And though Ida wasn't quite Katrina, New Orleans is in a better shape because they believed that they had freedom from environmental disaster. That's why they worked on the levee system. Freedom from. And we all want to be free from COVID, don't we? All right, now all of this is on this corporate level, this societal level, this political level, but it's also individual too. I mean, we, we feel this tension, freedom to, freedom from, in the core of who we are. Now, we are free to get married, but many of us aren't free because of our shyness. Our shyness prevents us from engaging in ways that could lead to dating and eventually to marriage. All of us, we're free to complete in an Ironman race. You can go online today and sign up for the Ironman if you really want to. But the truth is, most of us aren't in good enough shape to do it. We're free to sign up. But we're not free from being out of shape. 
All of us were free in some ways to be financially independent. Free to do that. But many of us aren't free from our lack of control when it comes to our money. So you see this, freedom to, freedom from. Freedom to, freedom from. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, it says, Though I am free and belong to no one, it's freedom from, that first line, I have made myself a slave to, freedom to, everyone to win as many as possible. See, do you see it? The first half of the verse is about this freedom from the opinions of others. And the second half is about the freedom to love others. Now, when the Bible talks about being free from things, there's these three chains that get us, that keep us in bondage as human beings, that we're not free from sin, naturally. We're not free from the devil, naturally. And we're not free from the world, naturally. And what the freedom from chain that he's talking about here is the freedom from sin, and the particular kind of way that we're not free from sin, according to verse 19, is that we're not free from the opinions of others. Now, when Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, he's not talking about being a human slave and slave to a human master. He's talking about this opinions of others. And you know it's a type of enslavement. It's, it's, it's the sin that, that, we, that, that happens because we take others' words more seriously than we do God's. See, God's words about you is that you're valuable, that you were made in his image. God's words to you is that you're more messed up than you could even imagine. If God showed you how messed up you really were, you would end your life. And you'd end it here and now. But God's gracious in not showing us all the darkness in our soul soul all at one time. Well, God's word to you also is that even though you are so messed up, more messed up than you ever imagined, you're more loved than you ever dared dream. And that's why he sent his son Christ. And when you get yourself in this narrative, and this is where you live each and every day as this dearly loved yet deeply broken person, you can begin to be free from the fear of man, free from the opinions of others. But none of us are as free as we ought to be. We've got a long ways to go. We have a long ways from being free from the sin of people-pleasing. But that's just the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse says that you're free to something. You're free to love other people. That's what he means. So notice how he frames this. He says he was one kind of slave, a slave to the opinions of others, and now he's a different kind of slave. He's a slave to loving others. And this brings up a really interesting, deep, and for many of us, painful relational dynamic. See, many of us are in relationships with others because we need them, not because we love them. We need other people to think well of us. And so what we're doing all the time is that we're obsessed about what other people are thinking about us. Do they respect us? Do they value us? And when that's the way you're operating in relationship, you can't love that person. Because you're really just thinking about yourself. But when you love that other person, that means you don't have time to think about yourself because you're so obsessed with what they need and what would benefit them. But what does it look like? What does it look like to be freed from 
the opinions of others and free to actually love them. Well, that's what verses 20 to 22 show us. It's freedom practice. And Paul says he loves them by becoming like them. And he lists three different kind of people using four different phrases. The first group of people, he uses two different kinds of phrases. One is that he becomes a Jew. He becomes like a Jew to win the Jew. And then he says he becomes like those under the law to win those under the law. Same group of people. The Jews. And the Jews are very, very, very practical people. So it meant for Paul that he was going to love them by tying principles to real life. The second group of people he talks about are those not under the law. He's talking about the Greeks. He's talking about the Gentiles. And they're different than the Jews. They're very intellectual. They loved philosophy. They lived in the world of ideas. And so it meant that Paul, in order to love them, was going to have to engage them in that world, the world of ideas. And the third group of people, he says he becomes like the weak to win the weak. Now, I read a whole bunch of commentaries, five in fact, this week, just trying to figure out what he meant. And all five commentaries had a different take on what he, who he meant by weak. But I think it could at least, it's possible at least that he's talking about those who are socially disadvantaged, those on the margins, the poor. So here he is. Paul is doing this work that I'm going to use a big word for called contextualization. He's doing contextualization with unbelievers. And contextualization is simply this. It's giving people the Bible's answers to the particular questions about their life. And there's different types of people, so there's different kinds of questions. Another way to put it is that contextualization is just the loving work of trying to understand the values of a given culture in order to translate and adapt the communication of the gospel in a way that can be understood. It's not necessarily giving people what they want because the gospel is offensive on its own. It's offensive by its very nature because it calls people to repent. But what contextualization does, it doesn't want to make the gospel any more offensive or any more alien than it already is on its own. And so when you do contextualization well, the gospel becomes clear and attractive while also challenging sinners' self-sufficiency and calling them to repentance. Think about Paul's speeches in Acts. If you were to go through there, you'd see he talks to all different kinds of people. He talks to Bible believers in some instances, Christians. He talks to poor polytheists, peasants. He talks to sophisticated pagans. He talks to Christian elders. He talks to a hostile Jewish mob. He talks to governing elites. All these different audiences. So there's all different kinds of speeches. And when he's talking to Christians, Paul usually quotes a lot of scripture. When Paul's talking to Gentiles, when he's talking to Greeks, what he does is he's usually trying to build some conception of God for them that's biblical. And when he's talking to Jews, he goes straight to Jesus. That's what we see in the book of Acts. But think about our culture. Think about just the, the, maybe the largest way to think about uh, the, the world at the, at the moment. You have Western cultures and you have non-Western cultures. And Western cultures, that's us. 
We make this idol out of individual freedom. And so it's really easy for us to embrace love and acceptance as attributes of God. Grace and forgiveness are attractive to us. But sin and judgment are really, really hard for us to accept. But you get into non-Western cultures, the, the idol is not individual freedom, it's honor. For them, it's really easy to accept the idea of deep human depravity. It's really easy to accept that God is sovereign and he's just and he's holy. But what's hard is this whole idea of free grace and forgiveness because they're seen as weakness. It's seen as injustice. In non-Western cultures, retribution is really important. It's important to maintain dignity. It's important to keep order in society. So you see this. These two different ways of looking at culture. How to communicate the gospel in unique ways in those different places. For instance, uh, Tim Keller in his book, Center Church. Um, it's his best book, by the way, if you're a Keller fan. Uh, I'm, I am one, unashamedly. I wish I could be a hipster in that regard. I'm just not. And um, anyways, it's a great book, and he, in, in it, he talks about uh, how when he taught seminary, and he taught seminary in Philadelphia uh, at Westminster, and at Westminster he had uh, really two different cultures in every one of his classes he talks about. He said he had Anglos and he had South Koreans. And he said all of these students were working really with the, uh, an identical theological framework, but they had very different approaches to authority. Anglo cultures were highly suspicious of institutions, very suspicious of those in leadership. And Anglos, Anglo Christians in those seminaries, they could point to biblical texts about not lording their authority over those to whom they lead. Matthew 20, 1 Peter 5. But then the South Koreans, they would point that there's honor due to certain leaders in your society, the civil magistrates. Your elders, your fathers, your pastors. And they could point to different passages like Hebrews 13 and Romans 13 and Ephesians 6. And so when he's talking about this, he's saying there's certain things that we critique and there's certain things that we affirm in every culture. To the Jew, it became like a Jew. To those not in a law, it became like those not in a law. To the weak, it became weak. That's what it's going to take to love all these different kinds of people. Uh, Jen and I, we've experienced this just in our move. About six years ago when we started the church, we moved from uh, a, a neighborhood kind of on the south end of town to about a uh, mile that way, between here and Main Street, essentially. And when we lived in our last house, when we moved in, uh, everyone around us was pretty much just like us in terms of uh, where we were coming from uh, in education status, where we were coming from in our ethnicity, our income level, our political persuasion. Everything was pretty much identical. And, and when we moved in, people wanted to throw us a party. Not just because we moved in, but because a pastor had moved in on the street. <laughs> and if you're honest and you've been around Kentucky very long, there's lots of places in our state, even in Lexington, or if you move on the street, because you're moving on a street that's likely very, quite churched, it's very politically conservative, the pastors will have parties thrown for them when they move in. 
Now, if you plant a church in those spaces, and trust me, we need to plant churches in those spaces, what you have to do with the gospel, you have to show how the gospel is not always consistent with the current Christian subculture. What you have to do to contextualize properly, you've got to show how the gospel is not always conservative with being politically conservative. But when you plant a church in our neighborhood, in a very small radius of our house, there's difference of almost every kind, from education level to political persuasion. You've got to find different ways to communicate the same gospel. And it's a lot of work. It's work that we've had to do as a family. It's work that we're learning to do as a church. We have a long ways to go. It takes a lot of balance. So think about this illustration. Think about that if you were building a road and you had a large boulder that was keeping you from building the road that you wanted to build. It was a boulder that was so big, there's no way you're going to be able to move it. The only way you could move this boulder was if you blew it up into smaller pieces so that you could then move it. And the way that you blow up a boulder like this is that you drill holes into it. And in those holes, you put dynamite, and then you light the dynamite, and it blows up into smaller pieces so that you can move it. And so when you're contextualizing the gospel, drilling holes is like building the relationship. It's doing it based on love. It's doing it based on respect to one's culture. And that's really good drilling work. And then the dynamite is the proclamation of the gospel. But think about if you just did one of those tasks and not the other. If you just, if you just had a huge boulder and you put dynamite on the outside of it, you would just be making a lot of noise. And you'd be turning the outside of that boulder black with soot. And if all you did was drill holes into the boulder, you would just have a Swiss cheese piece of rock. But if you do both, you'll be able to build your road. And if we do both, we'll be able to win people to the gospel. So it brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? How this freedom is practiced, how we love other people. Which are you more likely to do? Are you just throwing truth bombs, gospel bombs, without doing any drilling? Do you only drill holes and never use dynamite? Do you only ever build relationships and never get around to sharing the gospel? Or maybe this whole conversation, you just realize, wow, everybody I'm ever around, they're just Christians. <laughs> or maybe everybody I'm around, they're just like, I don't have to do the work of contextualization because I'm only around people who are like me. And so this whole business, this whole business of being a slave to all, especially slave to all who are unbelievers, it's really hard work. You're going to have to know what you're freed from. You're freed from sin. You're going to have to know what you're free to, free to love others. You can know what loving people means, that you know that it means listening to the questions that they have. And you can know the gospel, and you're still unmoved. Or maybe you hear all of this and you're deeply moved. You're ready to win others for Christ. You know that's the mission of the church. You know that we're called to a life of ministry. We're called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to, commit, to, to obey everything that Jesus commanded them. You know that. And you're excited about it. But you're going to need more than knowledge. You're going to need more than excitement. 
You're going to need power. And that's what you see in verse 23. Verse 23, we see, I do all, he says, Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Look at that. What do you expect Paul to say? I do all this for the sake of the gospel that not I, but they, <laughs> they, the Jew, the Greek, the weak. That's why I do all this. I do all this ministry, all this hard work and contextualization, all this loving people are different from me so that they may share in the blessings of the gospel. But Paul says it's, he does it for himself. He's, he's got some selfish motivation about this. He's incentivized personally for this. It's his joy. It's his joy to do this hard work. Why? Think about Jesus. I think Paul was thinking about how Jesus had loved him. That Jesus had become like him. And that helped him get in touch with what it was going to take for him to love other people. Think about all the ways Jesus is like you. You might think, well, gosh, Jesus doesn't like me. He went around healing people. He loved even difficult people. I don't heal nobody. I don't love anybody who's difficult. But Jesus actually is a lot like you. See, before Jesus went to public ministry, he was 30 years old. And he woke up every day. Six days a week, and he went to work as a carpenter. Who does that sound like? You. Think about it. Jesus lost loved ones. John the Baptist was most likely one of the dearest people in his life, and John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. And I'm sure Jesus was deeply grieved. Who does that sound like? You. You too have been deeply grieved by the loss of loved ones. Think about Jesus' friends. Yes, I mean, he was close with John the Baptist, but he spent these three years, day and night, with these 12 disciples, and they all rejected him. After he invested all his life into them. Who's that sound like? You. Think about Jesus. He was accused of all kinds of things that weren't true. He was a victim of injustice. Who does that sound like? Sounds like you. Jesus was hated for telling people the truth. And he did so in love. Who does that sound like? You. See, as you realize just how far Jesus went to become like you, you'll be filled with joy. You'll see that he left the praise of heaven to fully identify with your experience. And you will see, brother and sister, that your pain is not unique. You will see that your pain is not isolating because he's there with you and he's shouldering it today. And as you see Jesus do this for and with you, you'll be able to go the cultural distance necessary to love all kinds of unbelievers. And as you do, you'll be filled with great joy. Let's pray.
Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Father, forgive us for believing that we really are alone in our pain. Forgive us for our arrogance. Of not being able to listen and take the time to understand where people are coming from. Oh Lord, we need your help. In Christ's name, amen.